recorded live from the lobby of the Lion Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Uh, Good afternoon and welcome. You are listening to Full Service Radio, broadcasting from a number of locations around the country. This is the Junctional Thinking Podcast. I am your host, Pierre Vigilance, and we are uh, celebrating uh, today or this week. um, It's a strange time to have any kind of celebration and no there are no gatherings happening as a result, just virtual ones. But we're celebrating this podcast turning one. Um, This week, a year ago, uh, some folks at Full Service Radio, Jack Inslee and Alexia Brown, suggested that this would be a good thing for maybe me to try out. And a year later and 35, 36 episodes later, we're we're still running this thing. So thank you to all of you who have tuned in over the course of the last year. Thank you to all the guests who have been on the show. And thank you to today's guests who um, sort of represent what I think of as a really good representation of the mashup that junctional thinking is. Because uh, they they all think in multiple planes in their regular daily lives. Um, and I think that this conversation that we're going to have today is going to highlight not only that, but just how nimble they are with respect to um, how things cross over for them as well. So without further ado, um, I want to introduce you all to three great folks, Travis Waldron, Daniel Beer, and Kerri-Ann Peart. Um, in that order, if you wouldn't mind just very briefly giving us an intro or a reintro to you. And then uh, we will get into this conversation. So, Travis, you're up. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, my name's Travis Waldron. I'm a journalist uh, for the Huffington Post, Huff Post in DC, uh, and I cover uh, politics in a variety of forms: um, sports, uh, Latin America, red state America, all over the place. Uh, just kind of a generalist reporter. Good stuff, good stuff. Also, a, a, an Arsenal commiserator. Um, yes. Have about that. Um, you're in Washington, and Daniel, you are in New York. Is that correct, sir? I, I am. I am in New York. Um, and thanks for having me. Congratulations on one year of the podcast. 37 episodes is no small feat. So, um, so that's really exciting. And excited to be on with everybody else. Hi, guys. Um, my name is Daniel Beer. Uh, I know Pierre. Uh, through a series of different types of impact investment uh, work. And that's kind of been my my scope for the last couple of years, focusing on how do we actually uh, improve the lives of, of people who need it most. And because I'm from New York, I grew up with a bunch of different people in the arts and culture space and have really kind of uh, focused on how that lens can lend itself to community development and how we can kind of meet people where they are and lift them up through culture. Um, so... That's that's kind of the, the way I work today. I'm kind of an independent consultant and have a various uh, variety of, of projects. Thank you, sir. And last but by no means least, <laughs> Carrie-Anne Peart. Carrie-Anne, how are you? Good, thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me back. 
Um, so I'm Carrie Ann Peart, and I do a lot of work um, in the intersection of health, human services, and education, and that literally is a portfolio that I am currently supporting and managing in various capacities at the county level, um, Prince George's County, Maryland. Um, my background is essentially in health behavior um, and looking critically at how culture informs the health outcomes that we see and how we can advise from there with um, respect to culture and dynamics of surrounding context of folks. Well, thank you all for making the time to, um, to get together this afternoon. The, the conversation that I thought might be interesting, I mean, of course, right now, we are, it's, it's April the 8th, um, 2020. We have a situation, to put it lightly, with this uh, global coronavirus um, pandemic. And while that has been on a lot of, is on all our minds, no doubt, and has been on a lot of people's minds, I wanted to know whether or not it'd be okay with you all to pivot to um, maybe think about or, or to ask you how you're thinking about post-COVID. Like, you know, so when we get through all of the things that need to be gotten through, and I'm not suggesting that in a light-hearted manner, but when we get through what we need to get through, post-COVID, sort of how does that prospect shine on your desk? Or does is it one that you're not really thinking about much? And Carrie ann if you don't mind me starting with you, because of your government lens, then uh, we can sort of open it up from there. Huh, sure. Yep. Um, so the, the, the aftermath is what you're thinking about. Um, and uh, we are also looking at that. We're, of course, like every other jurisdiction in the nation right now, looking at this surge effort and what it means um, for our needs to really serve adequately. And as we look at that, we're also projecting what impacts are going to be and what will we have to do um, down the line to um, respond more efficiently and effectively um, to something like this if it were to happen again, or I guess, as my, my boss keeps saying, when it happens again, because these things happen in cycles, as we, um, as we know. Um, so yes, we are definitely thinking about, you know, what this is going to look like when we do the hot wash. Um, where were the, the inefficiencies? Where were the redundancy elements? Um, what about strategy and timing? Because um, ironically today, I was looking at the uh, Washington DC response um, and rollout of strategy and planning compared to our jurisdiction in the county and um, some other counties in Maryland. And the differences are very clear um, and in some cases um, kind of embarrassing. And so as a public health practitioner, you know, it's, it's me thinking about where, where could we have done better and why did we not do better from the beginning? Um, so really thinking about what we need to do as a jurisdiction to work more effectively and efficiently across not just agencies, but across um, the nonprofit sectors, the business sectors, our education components. Um, and just everyday citizens. How do we communicate and um, empower citizens to um, support in efforts in times like these? So as you think about that response 
um, Daniel, and, and given the fact that you work at the intersection of a few different things, um, and this idea about working better across agencies and across sectors, mm-hmm. I know you and I have spent talking about this. So what, what does that comment spark in, in you and your thinking as a first part to the question? And the second part to the question is you thinking post-COVID, what are you thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think they're totally related. And thanks, Carrie, for that, because that makes a lot of sense to me. For me, it's about uh, what does it mean to be resilient? You know, and that's kind of a, a word that people love to throw around. It's kind of like a buzzword. But but when I think about resiliency, I think about an individual's ability to respond to some type of economic shock, right? Or something that limits their ability to make, uh, you know, make a living in one way. Can they diversify the ability to make a living in different ways? And for me, you know, the way that I've watched uh, the kind of the, the response thus far has been technology is a large part of that resiliency, right? There are a lot of people who are able to work from home on the things that they will do and still make a living doing that. And so, I, you know, in, in a kind of a totally different context, you know, I manage a, a, an artist, a hip hop artist. And in the music business, the touring business is 90% of an artist's revenue. Right. But the touring business is totally out now. And so we have to think about these other things that people create in the digital world. How do we actually enable people to sell things in a digital context, make make money in a digital context? And then how do we get the corporations uh, like Facebook or people that are kind of using people's information to make uh, you know, their bottom line work? How do we get them to pay a digital dividend to individuals who are actually providing the things that they need. I think we just have to think about uh, in response to shocks like these, how do we diversify the income streams of individuals across the board and across industries? And I think focusing on technology is a really, really good way to do that. Um, And that cuts across culture, that cuts across health, that cuts across economics. And we're seeing a lot of adoption of those types of tools today. And I just think in the post-COVID world, it's all about diversifying that and kind of continue to kind of, uh, you know, buttress that in case there's more to come. Does that make sense? Is that, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it does make sense. I think, okay, I'm just looking to see my levels here. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. And I think that it's, um, it's something that has been talked about before. I know that we talk about um, sort of in the public health world, we talk about um, health disparities and we talk about social determinants of health. And part of the reason um, why I wanted to make sure that Carrie Ann was here because because she works at this intersection of sort of health and education and a few other things formally for a government entity that sees and understands that intersection but there are these digital disparities that have also persisted with economic disparities, et cetera, that make it challenging for some communities to engage in this, what we'll call digital economy, um, even pre-COVID, which now creates a situation now, in our current situation, and will present one looking forward into the future. And so as a sort of right. pivot, pivot from what you're saying to more of an international stage. Um, and Travis, you've sort of traveled a number of places and, and reported from those places about 
the disparities in the way that governments have responded to different situations, be that um, sports events or other scenarios. Um, how do you see um, the the new world order sort of unfolding post-COVID in relation to your own sphere of experience, but maybe also with respect to what Kerry-Ann and Daniel have been talking about? Yeah, I mean, I so I think from the journalism perspective, this is this is it's difficult to think too far into the future because this is a story unlike any uh, that I can remember covering. Uh, in that it's it's literally all consuming. Um, I think like ninety, you know, I, I would say over I think ninety percent of what we're doing right now is COVID related. We're not we're not really covering. I mean, there's an election going on, and I work for a largely political focused website. And in a lot of respects, you have to dig through it to find election coverage. It's, it's different in that the normal process would be you have kind of a breaking news story, a bit, even a big breaking news story, and then time to sort of contextualize it all. And, and there hasn't been any of that time to do that in the from a journalist perspective, because it's been moving so fast and in so many different directions. Uh, I think you know, first as a journalist, and I just I just finished writing about this a story that's going to publish this weekend is uh, that makes me think in a broader perspective is we're going to have to think about the the very kind of tenets of democracy and democratic society and how uh, fragile and exposed many of them are. The the news industry is facing. Um, and, and particularly the local news industry is facing like an extinction level threat mm-hmm. from from the economic crunch here. And it's not alone. I, I think the this crisis has had a unique ability to expose pretty much every hole and every shortcoming in not just American society, but in uh, across Europe, across South America. I mean, every uh, everything it has done, has has exacerbated already existing problems, be they in public health, uh, be they in uh, you know urban poverty, urban health access, education access. Um, all of those things are being exposed, and I think we have to think really hard going forward about how how and can we reorient uh, and rebuild in a, in a manner that's much more equitable. Um, maybe has much more overt government support for different things and and has a much more like long-term vision for for how these things work as opposed to the 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 sort of laissez-faire short-termism that uh, in a lot of ways got us here right no I hear you I hear you on that um, I want to, so this is interesting let's let's just remind people of who we're who we are and, and what we're doing here. You're listening to the Johnson of Thinking podcast, which is broadcasting from all over the place right now on full service radio. Um, my guests today are uh, HuffPost reporter Travis Waldron, social impact slash um, arts manager Daniel Beer. Is that right, Daniel? Sorry not to call you that. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely fine. <laughs> and um, health and human service and education um, as a c- crossover connection maker and problem solver, Kerry Ann Pitt, um, 
who have all been guests on the show before, but uh, are coming together for this conversation about the sort of post-COVID scenario. And there's some interesting things that you sort of each said, which reflect, I think, not only your where your lens is naturally focused, i.e. the work that you're expected to do, but also to some extent looking ahead at the work that sort of you might do or that might be we might be called to do. Um, and as you know, this show is for practitioners, really. It's, we call it junctional thinking, but sort of may even need to pivot to calling it junctional doing because uh, at some point you have to do something with what we're thinking about. So as, as you were talking, Travis, and you were talking about how it's difficult to think too far ahead um, because the story is always unfolding and it's sort of 99.9% COVID and it's hard to see anything else in there. The um, interesting thing is I think that the healthcare system is probably appropriately right now doing the same thing. It's noses to the grindstone and it's not um, really seeing itself as very capable of trying to look past this or, or thinking that if they were known to be looking past it, then they'd be being um, irresponsible with respect to what's currently on the table. But I think while it may be okay in journalism to not look past it because it is everything news-wise, we have this bigger responsibility to at least be giving some thought to what's next because we've got a lot of people out there who – um, have these holes exposed that you're referring to, and and need need some um, need some support now and for the future. So, you know, Daniel, as you as you do your movement in different places, spaces, and then I'm going to come to you, Carrie Ann, with the same thing. Like, who are you seeing as as being um, in most need? In quotation marks, as you as you think about the holes that Travis was referring to, who right. are in those holes um, that from your perspective? And then Carrie Ann, same question. Sure. Hmm. So it's a, it's a complex question um, yes. because I think there are a lot of people who are in need in different ways. And, and obviously there's an economic need, look, the economic divide that we, and the inequality that we have, in this country is growing and it's just getting worse with this type of a system, right? Or with this type of a crisis. So you're looking at people who have wealth, who see the market going down and they see an opportunity to invest because they know it's going to come back up and they will end up with more money. And the people who don't have anything will end up with less and it's going to continue to push us forward. And so I think there does, you know, I think there's an obvious need economically to support people who are in vulnerable positions. And I really do think that both that's an emergency response conversation, but I also think it's what you're talking. It's about creating more economic sustainability in the livelihoods of those people. And I think that's about changing our systems. And I have kind of a focus on technology and how that can do it. But I think there's a lot of different ways. So I think that's one aspect. You know, I think there's another aspect because, you know, you uh, at least two of you are, are health practitioners and come from that world. Uh, you know, I had a friend say to me that there's this is kind of a tripartite crisis. There's the health crisis, which is creating an economic crisis, which is creating a, a mental health crisis 
you know, where people are really trying to figure out how they go about their lives and who they are and struggling with those types of concerns. And I think there is a, a lot of work to be done in that space. You know, how do people actually respond from their homes to feel like they're in a community together? How do we support people uh, who have lost everything? You know, and I think focusing uh, on that area and that arena is going to be another big opportunity. And Pierre, you know that we've done some work like this before um, with Sad Girls Club out of New York and thinking about how do we get people who normally don't uh, adopt or use mental health services um, you know, the people who might need the most, how do we speak uh, in a way that's culturally relevant to them, uh, be a part of that community so that they can see that some of these services can really, really help them move forward. And so, you know, last week, last year, we did kind of a collaboration between a bunch of different artists in the New York hip hop community and, uh, you know, the health nonprofit, mental health nonprofit. This year, you know, in about a month and a half, we're going to do the kind of second version of that called the Digital Work Week. The first one was called Work Week. And we're going to try to focus on that same thing again um, and sit there and say, how do we use art and community in order to respond to some of these different uh, different issues? So so my answer is kind of twofold. I think there's an economic issue for long-term people. And then I also think there's just a mental health issue that I think we really, really need to address and that we can address today. That's excellent. A jump-off point, I think, um, for, for Carrie Ann, do you, what are your thoughts uh, with respect to the, the holes? And are they aligned with what Daniel was referring to, or do you have some slightly different take on that? No, I they align. Um, of course, uh, to be even more granular in the public health sphere, um, we we categorize people. So you know, yes, it's an economic crisis, and the further the further we categorize, we go down to like small business and entrepreneur um, individuals that are struggling through this. Um, when we think about the mental health crisis category, we already think about, again, from a public health space, behavioral health stance, where I, I operate mostly in thinking about folks who are already diagnosed with certain anxiety disorders or depressive disorders, um, social anxiety disorders, for instance, I know has been a big one that I've been um, talking to certain colleagues about during this time. And it's kind of like the reverse social anxiety anxiety um issues um so those things are happening and it's evident i think this this crisis has this global crisis has exacerbated the need for um attention and resourcing and supports for um people who we have already categorized as vulnerable um we one of the things that i consistently look at in my work is what you know what it, what are the impacts effects um on children children and young people um what what it, what do we think about when it comes to managing their needs um and their varying um developmental um efforts and and if, uh, impacts as well given this kind of global thing that's going on and Teachers have been finally. I think this this pandemic has really elevated the need to resource and equip teachers and to celebrate teachers a lot more now that children are at home with their parents. Um, so we see needs in in a lot of sectors, like Daniel is saying. But of course, I just look at them in a little bit more of a granular way um, on a daily basis. So it's it's all there, 
And um, what I really think this pandemic um, has done is not to just not just shine light on the need across the board, but how we have not necessarily as a society done as well as we think we have when it when it comes to addressing people's needs and concerns. We think by and large that we've done so well, we've advanced in so many ways, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but this crisis is showing us that we are way behind the eight ball. Um, the, the, the discussion earlier about technology gap and how we need to reassess how we engage technology to really make it beneficial to us and, and productive to us, I think is uh, a major point that we definitely need to reflect on because I think it's scary to a lot of us to know that we can do pretty much more than 50% of our work from home. <laughs> I think that's that has been an, an alarming fact for many who are, um, you know, now stuck in a position to say, well, goodness, we, we're so used to having to see people in the office and, and we think that the only way that people are productive and efficient is when they're sitting in a cube in the office. And now we have to rethink that um, and, and recognize the impact that real work-life balance um, can look like what it could, what, what that could actually mean and look like moving forward. So I agree with Daniel's points and, and I just look at them I look at them a little differently because of just how I have to um, narrow down sometimes to some of the elements. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. As, and as I, as I listen to you talk about what sort of doing well, I, I wrote that down as it's like, you know, who, who's doing what well, Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes me, and I know you look at that. Some we look at that in different perspectives. That can be person to person. That can be community to community. That can be state to state, city to city. But then the reporting, and this is sort of where we sort of pivot back around to you, Travis. The, the the stories that are told about how well or poorly things are going in different places are what seem to buoy um, movement um, in a number of different ways and places, right? But uh, you, I know, as a really hardworking reporter, have written, I, I've spoken to you while you're researching stories, and you, you and others like you spend a lot of time doing the research, doing the work so that you can produce the best product, and it can be a, a, a trusted product based on the work that you've done. It seems to be part of the problem with our mental health challenges right now, to some extent, is that is confusion about what's what's to be trusted, who's to be trusted, and going forward, that's going to be an issue. Do you see that as an issue, though, for your more so for the people who are doing the talking, or for you who are doing the reporting? Uh, I think it's both. I think it's a. I mean, I think that is the. Aside from how you fund it, that's the central question facing uh, the news media right now. I mean, our credibility in the eyes of the public has been falling um, as a national media for for two decades. There there are a variety of reasons for that, one of which is an entire political movement um, deciding that its future rests on discrediting the national media at at every turn. but at the same time, when you look at surveys, um, Americans trust local media uh, more than anything else. 
more, more than almost most institutions even. And, but we're, we're at a point where uh, local media is drying up. Local media is dying and we're, we're going to have to figure out how to fix that. And I think that goes to the larger question of, of trust and how to think about after this, which is we, I think we all agree um, that we're, this is not nor this is not a normal time, and I don't think uh, when we get out of this, whatever that looks like, is going to necessarily be normal uh, the way it was before. And I think we have to start thinking about things that we wouldn't have necessarily thought about or proposed or suggested yeah. beforehand. The news media, I think, is one of those things where uh, the piece I wrote for this weekend is about whether there should be essentially a taxpayer-funded trust fund to promote and produce local journalism um, for communities that need it. We have 1,400 communities in the United States that have lost access to local news in just the last decade. A quarter of the nation's reporters have been laid off in just the last decade. Like This was already bad for my business, uh, and this has made it worse. And I think we have to start thinking about uh, radical ways to fix it and and not just um, with emergency funding, not one time. Like we have to do this uh, permanently and going forward. And I, I don't think that's unique to the news business. I think that's uh, something that we probably have to think about uh, in a lot of other sectors. I mean, the stimulus bill that Congress passed does a lot of things that people have been calling on the government to do for a long time. They can probably keep doing that. Uh, but, but I think it, it goes to, uh, to your question about trust is, you know, we can't, we can't have accountability of anybody without a robust local news media. Uh, and we can't have trust in local news media or in the media as a whole, if there is no media. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's vital uh, to rebuilding democracy, to rebuilding every institution, and to uh, ensuring that those institutions are accountable. Because one of the big things that we've seen, obviously, is that we weren't holding certain parts of it accountable enough uh, going into this. Right, right. I'm wondering, as, I, as, I'm, as I'm listening to you and thinking about what, what each of you has said, and I know, and we didn't really touch on this, but I know that, Carrie Ann, with your work being sort of community-centric, there are um, there are various challenges that those communities faced prior to the start of this current situation, that they face at varying levels of intensity, most higher levels of intensity now, and we'll have to deal with going forward. Um, how do you, with respect to this communication chain, how do you and your counterparts in government ensure that that the people who are likely to be most negatively impacted or are currently most negatively impacted are um, provided with good information in a timely manner, etc., such that the wheels don't fall off of already potentially rickety vehicles? Yeah, I'm thinking about several things. So let me try and make sure I um, speak coherently because everything's coming to me all at once. So uh, one of the things, so, okay, 
let me start with you know the, the populations that we're seeing um, both in my jurisdiction as well as nationally really, really impacted. We, we talk a lot about seniors um, and folks with differing abilities who are really severely impacted by um, what's going on. And those are those those groups of individuals along with children um, and and for instance, even the homeless population added to, the, to that bucket as well are some of the most um, severely impacted members of our community by and large globally. Um, so looking now at how bad things, quote unquote bad things have gotten for them in comparison to prior to this is really calling for a shift in, in practice um, across the board. I think it's important, not just you know in health and human services, I just think socially again, um, as we've all been kind of saying so far, is that the practice for all of us in our in our varied um, capacities has to change, and in order for practice to change, I think what's also critical to assess is the way we define things. So the language that we use when we are talking about, for instance, outcomes and outputs, um, and when we talk about efficiencies and effectiveness, what. Are, how are we defining those things in such a way that it works for me as a public health practitioner, but also works for Travis in journalism and also works mm-hmm. um, for Daniel in media? Like, what does it mean um, for all three of us to say efficiency and immediately think of the same thing, but just know that our practice has to then cater to our um, populations a slightly different? Um, so I think it's, it's really, we're going to have to come to terms to that, come to terms with that, um, as a community. And of course, as we all know already, practice takes a long time to really, um, to, to get it to a good point, you know, not even talking about doing it so well that you've mastered it, but just to get it across the board to a good point where populations such as those that I've mentioned before, or, Others in, in, in the various capacities that we each are serving are served in a way that is equitable, that is culturally informed and appropriate, um, and that is sustainable. You know, sustainability, we're also seeing that threatened at this point. A lot of things that we put in place in programs and service provision that we thought were sustainable have crumbled, have come under great um, threat, and some of them have just fallen apart. And so our practice and our language and defining things, I think, really um, needs to be assessed right now and moving forward. Thank you. Do you find, Daniel, as you listen to that, do you find that something is similar with respect to some of the communities that you interact with? If you think about the artist community, are there changes with respect to how that community looks at, thinks about, and is going to be interactive around some of these issues going forward? Or do you think that not much will change with respect to how they approach these things, which is always yeah. creative in this place? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. And, you, you know, we're hearing things from different sides of the industry. Something that I heard uh, for, you know, there's three large kind of media conglomerates in the music business. 
And they're all collaborating right now because right in the beginning of this crisis, streaming numbers were down, you know, about 20% across all platforms. And so all of the, uh, the kind of the heads of all the big labels got together and said, what are we going to do about this? And the decision, um, you know, as far as it's true, you know, everybody's kind of an independent actor. The decision from kind of the big marketing music minds of the world was we're going to sit this one out mm. and that the big artists are going to sit this one out. And I turned to a friend of mine and I got a phone call uh, who's who's an artist here in New York and does really well, successful. And we talked about it. And he said, you know, and why, when I heard that, I was like, they're not artists. <laughs> <laughs> because an artist responds to kind of the needs of the people, right? And the time in which they are kind of operating, like Nina Simone said. Um, and so what I have seen, you know, that's something that I've heard on the business side, but what I have seen from a lot of the artist community uh, are a lot of stuff trying to engage with their fans using all types of technologies and creating different ad hoc, imperfect ways to support the communities that they have. And I think this crisis has brought everybody closer to kind of the issues that uh, that our country has and that the world has in order to be able to kind of help each other. And so I definitely see more happening in that direction, which excites me. I mean, one another example is um, is Kirby at Pierre Moss, which is in the fashion side of things. Uh, he kind of took his office and uh, took a bunch of donations to give out to a lot of different artists and small businesses. And in addition, made it kind of a face manufacturing and PP&E collection and distribution center. So I just think that there are all these ways in which people are sitting there saying we have to care about each other. And the arts community is definitely a part of that. Um, and, and frankly, you know, look, Pierre, this is called junctional thinking. A lot of this is about breaking down the barriers. I, I think, uh, it's all, it's a time of kind of collaboration. People are less afraid to talk with each other across whatever industry we're and saying, Hey, maybe there's something to figure out here. Maybe we can just do something together from our home. And I think that provides kind of a real opportunity for us to do some things in the immediate future, but also bodes well the ways that different uh, industries will collaborate going forward. But like Carrie Ann said, we have to make sure we all have the same lexicon. We have to make sure we're all working on the same kind of set and principles and values. But if we can get it right, we'll definitely move farther than we did before. So that's, that's great. That's great. And I'm, I'm, I want to obviously plug, thank you for the, the junctional thinking tie-in because, you know, we've always felt, and you all have been junctional thinkers before it was even a term. So the way that you operate and how you work at the intersection of things, and hopefully people listening to this um, episode can sort of say, well, what would a journalist, a social impact slash arts management um, expert and a public health slash health and human services person be able to find in common to talk about that would be influential in each of their spaces. And I think that you all are answering that question without it actually being posed. I mean, it, this this could be, it's, if nothing else, I feel like it highlights where there are similarities between us and the work that we're doing for the people that we're serving and um, and just how aligned and alike we are even though we may not work in the same places and spaces. Right. And I I just want to add to that, just, you know, just to give a little bit of frame for the different people in the impact industry, whether it's in the public sector or nonprofit sector, the way that I've always thought about 
artists and not just, you know, culture as a lens is broader and it's about understanding people. But the power of an artist, I think, is A, they have a captive community that really listens and trusts them. And so if you can align the kind of community that you want to target with the artist that you're picking, you know, to work with, then they really can get a message across. They have this thing called the cool, you know, that people are like, hey, like, I actually want to do that just because it feels like something I want to attach to my identity. So instead of, you know, the financial literacy center around the corner, it's like, hey, you've really got to get your money right. Right. And you got to get your finances aligned and people who are, you know, who, who wouldn't normally go to the financial literacy center will actually go over there because that's the wave. Right. That's seen as being relevant to them in their peer group. And so I think that artists provide a lot of those different aspects to these other you know, aspects of the community development industry. And so anybody who wants to work with community of artists who want to work with people in that way. Uh, you know, feel free to reach out and connect because uh, I think it's an important aspect of any community development strategy. Yeah, I think uh, one thing too, P, if I can just jump in, is yeah. is that a, a word that you and Daniel and Carrie Ann have all used is is service, and I, I think one of the things that is a through line for the three of us is, and and for a lot of a question, a lot of people in this country are going to have to answer is is figuring out how to better serve the people that we should be serving. Um, the, you know, from a, from a media perspective, it's, it's easy to say, well, we're doing a core function of democracy, but if we're not getting the news to the people that really need it, and if it's not done in an accessible way for the communities that truly need it, and if it's not done in an equitable, equitable way, you know, to where we know right now from a public health perspective, that uh, black communities across the country are suf- suffering disproportionately from this. If we're not covering the news in a way that reaches, uh, you know, black communities or Hispanic communities or whomever, and and if public health officials aren't reaching them via the news or otherwise, then we're failing. Correct. Yeah. And then and then we're failing uh, a social impact investor who's trying to to make a change in communities like that we're we're failing public health officials who are trying to get a message out to to those communities we're we're failing at 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 every level and i think you know we've learned in this crisis who the truly most vital and most vulnerable people in the united states are and figuring out a way to serve them better in every fashion has to be a part of the response to this Mm -hmm. wow okay so this is great. I mean, I think if if there's a if, as we sort of wind this down, if there's a sort of takeaway there, then it's if people are wondering what the four of us and many others probably think about what's next, it's actually to be paying closer attention to the who are having the most challenges now, if you will, identifying those people, understand, seeking to understand what that lived, those lived experiences are, and then figuring out to take your terms, Travis, to sort of what you highlighted just now, which is to figure out how to better serve those communities because that's the thread that runs through all of our spaces, regardless of it being journalism, public health, social impact, the investment side, the art side, or whatever, it is about connectivity to one another and being 
of service and in service sort of to each other. Um, and it, it, what I love about this show and the conversations is that the, there are, it's very easy, at least from my perspective, to pick up a, a hook from one person's commentary and connect it to somebody else's because we are all, we are all speaking the same language. We're just speaking it in different spaces. And hopefully people who are listening to the show can take away from it some degree of, well, maybe I need to think differently about who I'm partnering with because maybe partnering with the same people all the time is part of the reason why we're not doing anything differently. Part of the reason why we're not serving better, part of the reason why we don't have trust amongst each other is because we keep talking to the same folks all the time. But Mm. cutting across different lines, I think, is definitely the junctional thinking way and certainly the way that I feel like all of you go about your work. Um, Yeah, this is sort of crazy. This time has gone so quickly. We're already at at the end of the show. I wanted to very, very, very much heartfeltly thank all three of you for joining me. Travis Waldron from the Huffington Post, Daniel Beer, Social Impact and, um, and Art Community. Um, uh, quick shout out to uh, D- Daniel. Are you at liberty to speak to who your, who your primary artist is? Because, you know, he's got to get a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quick shout out to Marlon Craft um, out of New York. And we'll be doing an amazing... Uh, work week part two, Pierre, in about three and a half weeks, actually maybe a month, um, where we're going to do a lot of kind of community-led initiatives with his audience. So. Meantime, some great music he has available online, YouTube, SoundCloud, etc. Um, and so that is just, just good stuff. Travis Waldron, HuffPost, paper article coming out this weekend, you say? Uh, I think so. Either tomorrow or this weekend. Okay, good enough. Watch out for other Travis Travis Waldron hits that are available. There's some <laughs> good writing out there by me. I appreciate reading this stuff. And Carrie Ann Pitt, now, is it a year now since you took took this job? Uh, almost, yeah. It's coming. June yeah. will be my official year, so it's been an interesting year. Right, but making it happen at that intersection in a position that doesn't exist in too many places. The health and human services and education connectivity, the space that you operate in is unique and you're crushing it. So thank you for your service and for continuing to do what you do. Thank you to all three of you. Thank you to everyone who's listened in. Junctional thinking is officially one. We are walking. We're talking words. Don't care for what you say around us because we might repeat it. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) we... We are uh, we're getting ready to do some other things in this in this next year of the show. So thank you to all of you who listen. Thanks you also to the the silent partner we have here in Jack Inslee in the uh, in the sound room remotely. And we will see you next time.